We are almost to the end of the first quarter. Uh, this has tw- the book has 24 chapters, and so today we may or may not finish chapter 6, depending on how far we progress this morning. We'll see. But at the end of chapter 6, what I'm going to do over the next few weeks as we work our way through, through, let's be honest, next few months as we work through the book of Luke is every so often uh, where there's a convenient time, for instance, the end of chapter 6, we're going to step out of Luke for a couple of weeks and do um, a couple of different things, some things we want to talk about, uh, building up a theme about we launched way back in January. We said that this year we're going to be the church and try to function as the church. Church is not a building. It's not about this place. The church is the people. And are we effective in doing that? So we're going to take a few weeks, uh, two, three weeks, and talk about being the church and just step aside a little bit and uh, rehearse that and remind ourselves about that. You know, the other thing I was thinking the last few weeks, uh, we put these banners on, on the wall, living, growing, serving, and uh, they're on the front of our bulletin now. It's kind of our new theme that we've been launching this year, and we put those out, and and we haven't really talked about them, but that really captures the life of a believer, the life of a church member, where to be living, growing, and serving. And so we'll be talking about that at the end. Once we get to chapter 6, at the end of that, we'll be stepping out for a couple weeks and talk about being the church and what that means. But for this morning, we're back in Luke 6, and we're going to begin reading today in verse number 43. And uh, we have just come off the section beginning in verse 39. We won't reread it, but... um, talking about how we are to go about uh, judging one another, how we go through this process of confronting those that need to be confronted, and how do we deal with that, and we looked at it, rehearsed it a little bit this morning in uh, Sunday school as well. But now he comes all the way down to verse 43, we're going to read down through verse 45. Jesus says this, For a good tree bringeth forth, bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. Verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Okay, We talked a couple of Wednesday nights ago actually about this issue of Um, idols of the heart, and today we're going to look at this simple truth this morning, and that being personal evaluation includes discerning the fruit that your life is producing. Okay, that's going to be our theme this morning, going all the way back to uh, verse 43, ties verses 41 and 42 together, where he talks about getting the, the, the beam out of your own eye before you go and you get a speck out of someone else's eye, that you are to do this self-evaluation process first. This also, we're going to see some thematic ideas going all the way back to verses 39 and 40, where Jesus had talked about false teachers and making sure that we are aware of who they are. In this verse, we'll, come, we'll get to it in due time, where he talks about the fact that out of your heart, your mouth speaks, and so tying it back even to those who were false teachers. But we are commanded, okay, by God that we are commanded to practice self-evaluation before addressing the sin problem that another person is facing. Okay, we talked about that at length last week and again today in Sunday school. We are often quick to judge the actions and attitudes of others while ignoring or choosing to overlook the reality 
of our own spiritual condition. Not to get fancy this morning, but the word in verse 43, the very first word, for, is a Greek word, gar, which is tying this back to verses 41 and 42, where he's telling us that you should assess your own self, get the beam out of your own eye, make this process of self-evaluation real before you ever go to another person to confront them in, in love, to show them that they are in sin. And this process now takes the next step, and that is to evaluate my own spiritual life and specifically evaluate the fruit that your life is producing. You know, very often, we like to be judging fruit in the lives of other people. We, we always want to look at others and try to discern how spiritual they are. And again, we talked about this in Sunday school. We know that what I see on the external may or may not give an accurate illustration of who they are. There are people that may go through routine of religious things that are not, in fact, genuine believers. And there are people who might uh, live a certain way that are not reflecting uh, what, what true Christianity is. And we understand that. So it begins with this self-evaluation. And he makes this very simple truth. He says that a good tree will not bring forth corrupt fruit... And a corrupt tree will not bring forth good fruit. That's not hard to understand. I'm not much of a gardener. Don't particularly like gardening. It's not something that I'm all that passionate about. So I don't know a lot about it. But I know this. We have two little plants on our back step. It's our whole garden. It's two two plants. And one is a tomato plant and one is a green pepper plant. Now, I know. I know this is shocking, but you ready? I am not expecting oranges to grow on the green pepper tree plant. That's good. That's good. I'm not expecting apples to grow on the tomato plant. Now, they're they're both red, I think. I'm colorblind, so I don't know. They may be green for all I know. Maybe you're wrong. You ever think of that? Maybe I'm right. But we understand very simple botany is that a particular kind of tree is going to produce a certain kind of fruit. And the issue is not in the fruit. The issue is that a corrupt tree will not bring forth good fruit and a good tree will not bring forth corrupt fruit. The fruit of the tree cannot be different from the character of the tree itself. The fruit is the product of one's life, and the fruit that you produce in your life will coincide with what is being manufactured in your heart. We've talked about this. So often in parenting, so often in relationships where there's authority over another person, that so often we want to deal with the symptoms of a problem. We don't want to always go to the root of the issue. The root of the issue, as Jesus is going to describe it here, is he says in verse um, 40, let's look at verse 45 just just for a second. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. We do what we do 
because of what is in our hearts. Jeremiah said this, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings. Listen to Ezekiel 14. Verse 1 says this, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all by them? Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may, make, may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are estranged from me through their idols. Now, we don't want to lose sight of this. And we're going to talk about this in, in a few minutes, hopefully in a very practical way. The God of my heart is going to determine the fruit that my life produces. Now, I know everybody's initial answer is going to be, the God of my heart is the one true God. I would ask you to evaluate the fruit that your life is producing and ask the question, does that claim match what is coming out in your life? Because he says that in Ezekiel passage, for instance, that these religious leaders came to Ezekiel and God's response to them, I have nothing to say to you because the idols that you are actually worshiping, they may not be made of rock and stone and wood, but you have erected in your heart an idol that you are worshiping. And it's not me. It's not the God of heaven. So Jesus begins to demonstrate and uses this analogy to demonstrate that one's behavior proceeds from their heart. Figs, he says, and grapes do not come from thorn bushes and briar bushes. Our heart is our innermost being that determines our decisions, our actions, and our attitudes. From the storehouses of our hearts comes either that which is good or that which is bad. Controlling bad behavior does not guarantee heart change. Disciplining actions, disciplining external things does not guarantee that a person's heart is changed and a person has stopped worshiping an idol. Conformity to standards of behavior can give the impression that there has been a changed heart. But genuine change is the result of a person who changes from the inside out. So here's the heart of the issue for us, pun intended. What we treasure in our hearts determines what will flow from it. What we value will determine our priorities. What we value most will set our life course. What we meditate on will determine what our hearts treasure. Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. And you may say this, well, 
you know, meditation is a common theme throughout Scripture. But you know what, Pastor? I don't have, I don't have the discipline to meditate. You're wrong. With all due respect, you're wrong. We all meditate all the time. We meditate on what is a priority for us. Meditate just simply means to take it in our minds and to play it over and over again and to dwell on it and to think so that it begins to impact my life and it begins to set the course of my life. In fact, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Jesus tells us very clearly, he says, for out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. What you talk about the majority of the time, that's your God. Because there is a connection between our heart and our mouth. What we dwell on, what we think about, whatever is in the foremost of our brain. That initially, have you ever, you ever been in a conversation with somebody? And maybe, it's, you know, maybe it's me, and you're talking to me, and, and uh, we're talking about, about um, fixing cars. I'm talking to Harold about fixing a car, and I will listen, and we're in Haiti together, and he's got parts of this bus strewn all over the place, and he's greased up, and he's in his zone, and he starts talking a language I don't speak. And I'm just, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that's what I would do, right? Because I, I don't think about that, I don't understand that, I don't have the vocabulary, I'm amazed by that. I, I can sit and think, wow, what a, what a gift that God has given to him. But you get on a topic, we have a We've had, interestingly enough, we've had, I used to be a respiratory therapist. We have one here this morning, and we've had another one uh, visiting, was in school for a little while. We got to talk about respiratory. We can talk. I, I can speak that language. I know it because I, 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 I've thought about it. I've learned it. It's in, my, it's in my heart. I can just go back and start using the vocabulary. I get it. And whatever we think about, whatever is important to us, whatever we dwell on, whatever we are consumed with, that's what we're going to speak about. So it's not that we don't know how to meditate. The question is, what do we meditate on? Because what we meditate on, in fact, will become the driving force of our lives. It will consume our hearts, and it will begin to set the direction of our lives. Notice, Jesus really breaks this up into two groups, and he does this twice in this passage. One, the fruit that is demonstrated in our lives is determined by our inner heart. And notice, there are those who have vile actions that proceed from a carnal heart. And if our mouth speaks what is in us, and we've all said this, we've said something hurtful, we've said something mean, and then we say, oh, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You're not sorry, you're not sorry about it as much as you're sorry that you slipped and it came out. Because if it's not there, you're not going to say it. So he says, out of the vileness of our heart comes these vile actions, but good actions from a godly heart. And then he makes the statement, as we've been alluding to, our mouths are the spigot from which the, the contents of our hearts are revealed. What we talk about reveals what we treasure. What we talk about reveals the fruit that is being manufactured in our lives. What we talk about reveals our character. Now notice all the way back in verse 40, we won't go back and read that, but we talked about 
false teachers and those that were violating the principles of Scripture, that they had been talking about things that were not true. Matthew 15, 18 says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and it defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. We're very, it's very clear that our heart, what we treasure, is going to determine the direction of our lives. Now, let's step back and say this. The reality is, as we read, the heart is deceitful among uh, who can know it. We, uh, we know that. Apart from a miracle in your life, your heart has no other choice but to serve an idol. We've often thought about that the, ap- the absence of theism is atheism. In other words, the, ap- the, the opposite, rather, of believing in God, the opposite of being a theist, someone who believes that there is a God, is atheism, that they don't believe in a God of all, at all. I would say that is absolutely false. The opposite of theism is not atheism, it's idolatry. Because you and me will worship something. That is why throughout the history of mankind, no matter where you go and whatever culture you go to, they are worshiping something. And you may take the most progressive liberal in our country and say, he may say, I don't worship anything. Yeah, you worship you. And you worship knowledge, or you worship political correctness, or whatever it is that you worship. The reality is, we all worship something. And our default mode is to worship something other than God. But when a miracle happens, when a person puts their faith in Christ, and they believe and they put their faith in Christ for salvation that their heart begins to change and their heart begins this process of being made into the image of God. And we know that Galatians says this, and I put a picture up here for you, that we can now begin to develop the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance or self-control, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the, with the affections and lusts. Remember Ezekiel had said that these religious leaders were in fact worshiping idols that were in their hearts. Listen to Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and, to, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So we know that this fruit, the fruit of the spirit, right? He talks about that these trees, verse 43, a good tree does not bring forth corrupt fruit. A corrupt tree does not bring forth good fruit. If you are unsaved, if you've never put your faith in Christ, your fruit is going to be corrupt. There has to be a change in your heart in order for there to be a change in the fruit that your life is producing. It's a miracle. 
It's a miracle that God would rescue you from your idolatry, that God would worship you, rescue you from your worship of self, from your worship of whatever idol that you have been worshiping, and to have the ability to worship him so that your life can change and your, your spiritual direction can, can be pleasing to him. That takes a work of God. That takes the Holy Spirit coming into your life to do that. But he's calling us to assess ourselves. And the question is this, verse 45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bring forth that which is good. Evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. Let me ask you this. As you assess yourself, as we are commanded to do in verse 42, get the beam out of your own eye, and you begin to analyze your heart and evaluate the fruit that your life is producing, rather than worrying about the fruit that your spouse is producing or your kids are producing, the fruit of your coworker, what fruit are you producing? And you begin to assess that, and you have to ask yourself this question, what or who am I actually worshiping? Because the fruit of our lives will give evidence of the God of our heart. He says, out of the treasure of your heart comes what do you treasure most? Everyone seeks some kind of treasure. What treasure controls your heart? What controls your heart will inevitably control your behavior. So we have to ask ourselves and understand that anything or anyone that absorbs my heart, my longings, my imagination more than God is, in fact, my idol. So when I ask myself, what is it that I meditate on? What is it that I think about? Our functional God is what dominates our minds, what we meditate upon. Our gods attract our eyes and they capture our hearts. While we may not worship the sun, the moon, a rock, or a piece of wood, we are all idolaters. And even those of us that know Christ as our Savior, we've been born again, and we know that we have the Holy Spirit of God living in our lives. We are still prone to idolatry. We are still prone to taking God off the throne of our hearts and putting something or someone else in his place. And when we do that, the fruit that comes out of our lives will be affected. I I don't know about you, but when you look at that tree and you ask yourself, is that characteristic of my life? Am I characterized by being, having joy, love, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Does that characterize me? Sometimes. But what about the times when It doesn't characterize me. Why? It's because something has taken God's place in my heart. Something has taken God off his throne and has replaced it in my life. Now, we did this a couple of Wednesday nights ago, but I want to come back to this because a lot of you were scattered elsewhere. Who or what has captured your love and your affection And what you treasure is your God. Anything or anyone you expect to give you, only that which God can give you, is your idol. 
An idol captures your heart, it captures your mind, it it captures your affection, and it becomes more important to you than God himself. Fill in this blank. If I only had blank, then I would feel that life has meaning. I would have value. I would feel significant. I would feel secure. You get that? What is it that you're trying to find meaning in? What is it that you're trying to find value in? What is it that you're trying to find significance in? What is it that you're trying to find security in? What is it that you want so desperately that you will sin against God to get it? And when it's withheld from you, you respond sinfully. We are all prone to worshiping counterfeit gods. And these counterfeit gods become so essential that if we lose it, if it's taken from us, life would hardly seem worth living. A counterfeit God has such control over your life that you will spend your energy on it, your emotion on it, your resources on it without second thought. And since we become like what we worship, that's what he says, if, well, depending on what is in my heart, what I'm worshiping in my heart, that will determine who I become. That will set my course of life. Since I become like what I worship, our God will determine what our hearts treasure most, most, and our actions will follow, and our identity becomes defined by our idol. And when our idol is threatened, and we believe that we're going to lose it, we often respond violently. We're in a panic when our idols are threatened. Not because it's something we simply enjoy, but it's because it's become who we are. If you lose your idol, you lose yourself. And what we worship fills our hearts. We meditate on it. And we live to obtain our God. Let's use a benign illustration that doesn't apply to any of us in the room. Don't you like those? They don't apply to anybody? Well, they do. They're just not here. What about the two-year-old child that so desperately wants freedom to do whatever he or she wants? And they want to be able to walk down the street. They want to be able to do something. Maybe they have an older brother or sister, and their older brother or sister can do it. And so they think, because I'm two and he's 12, I should be able to do what a 12-year-old does. And they want that freedom. And you say to that little two-year-old, now, look, buddy, you can't walk down the street because I can't let you do that because you're going to get hurt. And he says, but my brother does it, my sister does it. And you say, I know that, but he's older than you. You can't do it. That two-year-old says, you know what, Dad, you're right. Thank you for caring about me and loving me. You're the best dad I've ever had. I'm so thankful that God gave you to me as my father. If you've experienced that, you live in a different twilight. You live in the twilight zone. You live in a different arena than most of us. Because usually when I remember counseling a woman, like when I first went to seminary, she said, oh, I just can't control my kid. Like, well, that's pretty evident, actually. She said, yeah, he was like 14. She said, from the time he was little, he didn't like to be told no. And so I stopped telling him no. Who likes to be told no? So you tell that two-year-old child, no, you can't do that. 
And there, the reaction is what? You can speak. What is it? Temper tantrum, rage. Why? Because what they want is not what they're getting. And out of that doesn't come the fruit of the Spirit. Out of that comes the fruit of carnality. And we look at that two-year-old and say, yeah, that's right, they do it. We do it too. What about when you're not self-controlled? What about it when you don't have joy? What is it that you're after when you don't have peace? What is it that you're demanding when you don't love others the way Jesus loves you? And I'm demanding something in my heart. I want respect for my wife and she won't give it to me. I want my husband to love me the way that I see on TV and he's not romantic and he's not this. My kids don't treat me the way that I want and I don't get it. And I respond in anger and sin and lack of love. That's carnality. At that moment, something has taken the place of God in my heart, and I am demanding even a good thing that has become an ultimate thing, and when I don't get it, I respond in sin. That is your idol. That is your God. That is what you are worshiping. And so when you look at the tree, the fruit that your life is producing, and it's not that, and you're saying something's wrong with all these people that are around me, and they're making me lose my joy, they're making me non-loving, they're making me unkind. No, it's coming from you and me. Your circumstances don't control that. People don't make you unkind. People don't make you not gentle and and not patient. You do. Because it's what's in your heart. And when I demand something more than God, I'm an idolater. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. We've all done it. You know, you come home, been a long day, You're tired, Your wife was supposed to take the kids out. I used this illustration years ago, my wife said, please tell people this never happened. So this is fictitious, okay? This is not the Knowles family, okay? This is fiction. Fiction, fiction. Everybody understand that? Say it with me. Fiction. Ready? One, two, three. Fiction, okay? It didn't happen. Come home. Wife was supposed to go out with the kids. You're going to be home by yourself. Quiet, long week. Favorite chair. Television to yourself. And you walk in to a wife who's panic-stricken, saying, I totally forgot that we're having another family over for dinner tonight. I can't go to the other thing. They're coming in an hour. I need your help right now. They're going to be here in an hour. I'm not showered. The kids aren't dressed. Dinner's still in the oven. I need you to help me. Dear, I am here to serve you. I am so thankful that God has changed the course of our lives tonight. I desperately want to be your servant. Honey, you just tell me whatever it is you want me to do, and I will do it. Okay, again, if you heard that, you're in the twilight zone. It goes something like this. What? Tonight? How could you forget that? Now I don't get my what? Peace and quiet. 
I don't get to sit and do nothing. My comfort has been taken away from me. And now I respond with love, joy, peace, kindness, patience. No! I respond sinfully. Because what I'm worshiping at that moment isn't God. It's my demand for comfort, for peace. My demand for easy My demand to have, really, honestly, the kingdom of this world to go according to my edict. So these idols slip in. They fill our hearts. Paul David Tripp writes this. Listen carefully. It's a lengthy quote, but I want to read it. He says, The person you meet and mildly enjoyed becomes a person whose approval you cannot live without. The work you undertook to support your family becomes the source of identity an achievement that you just can't give up. The house you built for the shelter and comfort of your family becomes a temple for the worship of your possessions. A rightful attention to your own needs morphs into a self-absorbed existence. Ministry has become more of an opportunity to seek power and approval than a life in the service of God. The things we set our hearts on never remain under our control. Instead, they capture, control, and enslave us. He's so right. We are so prone to jobs, hobbies, possessions, relationships, recreation to become our God. Another litmus test, when a hobby, recreation, something like that becomes in the place where that's my pursuit, is when meeting together with God's people begins to slip down the pecking order and it just doesn't become a priority anymore. We've got a game to go to. We've got this to go to. We've got these lessons to go to. Well, this only happens on Sunday. We have to do that. We know we're going to miss six months of Sunday services, but, you know, this is what we've got to do because this is important to us. You know what? You, can I be honest with you? You teach a kid that when they're little and you're teaching them very well that your God is not God. Because when God is put to the back burner and other things begin to become more important to you, making decisions to not worship together with God's people on purpose is revealing to your children and to those around you that your God is not the God of heaven. And with all due respect, in 15, 20 years, when they're not in church, don't scratch your head and say, I wonder why. Because what we worship is going to determine our actions. It's going to set the course of our lives. We have to understand that these things are not inherently wrong or sinful, but they cannot become our God. Setting your heart alone on God, the true God of heaven, frees us from the opinions of other people. It gets us out of the rat race of success. It gets us away from the selfish desire to be served. See, the reality is godly fruit flows from a changed heart. Godly fruit flows from a heart that worships the God of heaven. So the next time in your life, your tree doesn't look like that and the fruit that's coming out of your heart doesn't resemble that list, stop and ask yourself a question. What am I worshiping right now? What is it that has become more important to me 
than worshiping God. Remember, an idol is something I will sin against God to get, or I respond sinfully when I don't get it, and I will invest my time, energy, my mental energy, my money, my resources, I will invest in it without second thought. That's your God. Godly fruit flows from a heart that worships the God of heaven. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. Second Chronicles 16, 9, we find great encouragement. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. It's a heart issue. When I try to change my behavior, seven steps to an effective Christian life, make these seven quick external changes and my life will be changed. Not true. Change your heart. Change what you worship. And what flows from that will be the fruit of the Spirit. You can't change from the outside in. You change from the inside out. And it begins with salvation. It begins with a, with a relationship with Christ. It begins in knowing for sure that Christ is your Savior. And then it's a matter of each and every day as a believer choosing to worship God and to choose Him alone. So as we close this morning, I want you to think about this. Only you can answer this. When you think about your life, what is it that you are truly worshiping this morning? What is it that is consuming you? And it might be something in your life, maybe even a good thing, may need to change. Because it's become too important. A good good thing becomes a sinful thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. And ask yourself, honestly, who or what is your God? Because if your fruit in your life, you want it to change, you've got to change what you worship.